please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. I'd encourage you to listen to the introduction we did in Isaiah last week if you had to miss last week. I think it'll help set the stage for you and know what's coming. Uh, One of the things I pointed out is that in the first 37 chapters of the book of Isaiah, uh, it's clear that God is king. And so we start not just a new book, but an initial section in that book that helps us understand that God is king. That kingship of God will come out very clearly when we get to chapter 6, but chapters 1 through 5 are kind of an introduction to the book. As I mentioned last week, you look at Jeremiah's call to prophetic ministry, Jeremiah chapter 1, his call. Ezekiel's call to prophetic ministry, Ezekiel chapter 1. Isaiah's call to prophetic ministry, chapter 6. Why 6? What happened in 1 through 5? 1 through 5 is telling us how bad things had gotten. And so it's important for us to see that before we try to understand the rest of the book. So Isaiah chapter 1, uh, as I told you again last week, that we're going to go through a number of um, passages as we study Isaiah that are lengthy. Some are less than a chapter. Some are six or seven chapters. So the, the speed will vary, um, but sometimes in longer passages I'll read I'll start by reading a portion of the chapter, and then we'll pick up the rest of it as we go along. So let's just start by looking at Isaiah 1, 1 to 9. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not, does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. I've entitled this message, A Sad Decline Permanent? or a phase. Look down at verse 4. Notice the words that God uses to describe where the people are at. This is the people of Judah. These are His people. He's not talking about the nations. He's not talking about unbelievers, if you will. He's talking about His people, 
who are despising, rejecting, forsaking their king. Again, look at verse 4. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, and here's what they're doing. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. Again, this is talking about God's covenant people. This is people, if you will, said in a new covenant sort of way, who are in church. Now, we know that the world despises the Lord, forsakes the Lord, but he's talking about a people who would be in church, whose hearts have forsaken the Lord and who despise Him. And the question is, for these people, is this going to be a temporary phase that you're in, and will you return back to the merciful Lord, or will this be the path that you take that ultimately leads to final judgment? That's the question. Is this just something temporary that you need the Lord to speak into and to be clear about? Or is this something that you're going to hold on to, this continual forsaking, despising of the Lord or even what He's doing in your life? Isaiah 1 through 5, but 1 sets the stage and brings us to the grim reality of where these people of God were at. It was a sad decline. This state of Judah, nation of Judah, Will they listen to the Lord and be restored, or will they be judged for their ultimate rejection? That's the question you could ask when you read chapter 1. Will they be restored? Will they believe that God is merciful and will restore them if they would repent, or are they going to continue in their rebellion and their ultimate rejection of Him? In this chapter, we see a national decline, a religious decline, and a social decline. Those will be our three points for the morning three ways that we can sadly decline when we despise and forsake our God. Now, I'm going to say right from the beginning, maybe this will serve you as you read not just Isaiah, go through Isaiah, but as we read the whole Old Testament. Not every sin, well, I should say as we read the Bible in itself, not every sin in the Bible means that you are struggling with that right now. So, if we were to go through the seven churches of Revelation and we look at all the sins of those churches and all the ways the Lord commends them, it's not as if you personally or even our church struggles with every single one of those struggles and we're to be commended in every one of those commendations. So, when you read the text, it's helpful to read it, not assuming, yep, I'm always doing that. Yep, I'm always doing that. It must be true. The thing to do is to see the sins and to really put a mirror in front of you and ask the Lord, is that true in me in any way? It might sometimes be no. Praise the Lord by the grace of God. It might sometimes be yes or be careful of the temptation to, to live like they are living in Isaiah. So, it's not as if all of these criticisms are aimed at every single person, but every th- single person should hold the mirror up and say, where am I in relation to these criticisms of these people? So, I don't want you to ever read the Scriptures seeing every sin and saying, if it's true of them, it must now be presently true of me. I don't think most of you are forsaking the Lord today. I don't think most of you are despising the Lord today. But I think that some of you may be. And so I'd encourage you to let these words be held up in front of you and to think through them. 
If you aren't forsaken, Lord, despising, Lord, praise the Lord. Be careful of where your heart could go. So these words would be important for you. And I think by seeing what God's doing here is it will give you a better understanding of how to help people who may be embittered toward the Lord. So lots for us to learn from this passage. Three ways we sadly decline when we despise and forsake God. The first is a national decline. Now, one more caveat, one more note. We'll be doing some of these notes early on in the series. <clears throat> Another caveat <coughs> or note, when you hear Judah talked about as a nation, and when you hear about their national decline like we will here in these first nine verses, <clears throat> it's important to draw a correct parallel. We don't look at the nation of Judah struggling and we think, okay, Judah, God's chosen people, now today, where are we at? America, God's chosen nation. We're not. They were. <clears throat> we are of the nations that God has sent the gospel to so that He would save people out of every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. So, don't draw the parallel between what's happened nationally in Judah to say, yep, that's what's happening nationally in America, God's chosen people. Now, you can see parallels, but the better parallel is to see God's old covenant people, Judah, and God's new covenant people, the church. And so when Judah is addressed, or even Israel is addressed in Isaiah, we will examine ourselves as the people of God. When the nations are rebuked in Isaiah, we will draw connections and say, look at what the nations do, the rebellious nations even in our day today. We'll see similarities there. So when we're talking about the people of God in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, I'm going to draw the parallels to the people of God in the New Covenant. I think that's how the Scripture is laid out, and we're intended to learn that way. You can see that example in 1 Corinthians 10 when Paul points to the sin of the Israelites in the wilderness and says to the church now in the first century, the New Covenant people of God, be careful lest you too have that same type of spirit, okay? So, Judah's decline is not necessarily America's decline, although there will be some similarities. Judah's decline should cause us to look inward and say, is any of this true of us? Okay. All right, the national decline. <clears throat> These people have strayed from their king, and they are and will continue suffering for it if they won't be restored to him. We see Isaiah's Again, setting of his ministry, I talked about this last week, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, four kings now, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now we're going to listen to the Lord bring his people to court. And who are the witnesses in this court case? The heavens and the earth. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey is its master's crib, knows where its master's crib is. But Israel, or Judah, God's people, does not know. My people do not understand. Even dumb animals know where to go for help, know where to go for rest, know where to go for feeding. How much more so should children know where to go for care, for protection, for feeding, for rest? These people at this time, his children, who he brought up, who he birthed, 
don't listen, don't know, don't understand. There's something very unnatural to how they're living. Let's notice again where their hearts are at in this. Ah, sinful nation, verse 4, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. So He chose them, brought them near to Him. They stiff-arm Him, have forsaken the Lord, turned their backs on Him. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. Sometimes when we think of Old Covenant Israel, we, we think they were just enamored with the gods of the world. They were just enamored with the wealth and the power and the security that other nations had. They were just kind of drawn away and they wanted the pleasures of the world. Well, it's more than that here. They're actually angry with God. That word despised, a synonym for that is abhor. They've forsaken the Lord. They have abhorred the Holy One. Sometimes people in the visible community of God, Christians in His church, His visible church, sometimes their hearts abhor Him, they despise Him, they're angry with Him, and that's the type of person that's being addressed here. This nation, their nation, is full of people who despise the Holy One, the different one than all the other gods, the unique one, the Holy One of Israel, of them, the powerful God who is theirs, had made Himself theirs, they despise. Angry with God, forsaking Him. They are utterly estranged, which is a word for an outsider or a foreigner, which is not what Judah is meant to be. Judah's meant to be his. He even said earlier, right, they're his children. But they're being treated like an outsider who hates him. They're estranged. wonder if this is working for them. They're angry at the Lord. I wonder if they're thriving because of it. The answer is obviously no. No one ever angry at the Lord is thriving. Verse 5, <clears throat> why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. When you're angry at the Lord, it's a cancer that affects everything. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. You just continue to suffer. Now, these people who are angry at the Lord have reasons they're angry with Him. He allowed this to happen. He's allowing this to happen. I'm angry at His people. Whatever it may be, they're angry at Him for some reason, but that never bounds up their wounds. The anger never brings the remedy. Verse 7, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Now, we know under the kingship of Hezekiah, which is the first, I'm sorry, of Uzziah, which is the first king that Isaiah prophesies under, we know that under his rule, the nation was largely at peace. But at that, they were still at peace, but there were threats around them. So when he says in verse 7, your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire, it could be that he's looking back to things that have happened to them in the past. It could be that he's looking at 
Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria who are starting to work together to come against Judah. We'll see that in chapter 7. But this, this should be understood as a warning. This is where maybe it's the society starting to go and will go in the future if you don't turn. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard. So Judah, citizens of Jerusalem, you are left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So you think of a field, a cucumber field, and a booth there, a place where someone would stay and watch out so that no one came in and tried to take cucumbers. So they would kind of look out and there were cucumbers. There's a sign of harvest. Something good's happening and people are watching out. Nothing bad's happening. He's saying, you continue in this anger toward God, this rebellion against God, you're going to be like an empty booth whose field and cucumbers are all gone. You can kind of see the tumbleweed flow through that, that field, kind of a sad state of all the good you had is taken away because of your hostility toward God. We're meant to see this kind of desolate place that kind of is depressing. Think, think the Prescott Gateway Mall or something like that, you know, just you walk through there like, man, this is sad. Once a place of life and Barnes and Noble and, and now, well, it's a little picture, but we're meant to see in Judah a place that once had security, international trade, safety, money. You continue despising the Lord. You're going to be like an empty hut in an empty field that's been ravaged by the enemy. The Lord will allow that to happen. Verse 9, a sign of life, a sign of life given by God Himself. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. You want to insult? You want to insult a nation of people? You want to insult a nation of God's people? Call them Sodom and Gomorrah. The place where wickedness dwelled. The place where the enemies of God shook their fists at him. And who were destroyed by him. This is Isaiah the prophet inspired by God Himself, calling the nation of Judah Sodom and Gomorrah. There's only one difference. In this nation, there's been left a remnant. A remnant of people because God's faithful. And He said that He would be the Savior of this people, and He will be the Savior of this people. Most have rejected Him, but some don't by the grace of God. Again, you want a New Testament parallel? Here's the remnant. We're the ones God has rescued. Most people aren't of the remnant. The church of God today is the remnant. He's a savior for his people. Romans chapter 9, Paul actually makes the argument that even Jews of this day, this side of the cross, some of them will be saved. Why? Because God has left a few survivors. There will be his ethnic people, a group of them, a remnant of them who will be saved by him, showing that what he promised back with Abraham will be true in the end. He keeps his word. So largely, this nation is going to be judged, but there are going to be 
those that God saves out of that nation. So we're introduced to Judah's national decline in verses 1 through 9. As we read 1 through 9, it's kind of like watching someone do things to destroy themselves and hurt themselves, and you think, why are you still doing that? Think about what's going on. Your anger and hostility and the destruction that's bringing to you, your family, your nation. Think about what you're doing. If this is in any way you, call yourself a child of God, but you're angry, despising Him, listen to the clarity with which God speaks in Isaiah chapter 1. Sometimes we don't like to hear the Lord be clear or His people be clear when they speak to us. It's a gift of God that He would not just say, hey, you're not doing well, but He's actually very specific. You're despising me. You're forsaking me. You're not healthy. Why aren't you turning? Listen to God's assessment. Let it stand you up. And remember verse 9, there's grace available. The Lord saves a remnant. Acknowledge what you're doing, where you're at, where your heart's at. Go back to Him. I love this quote by Ray Ortland, who writes on this passage. Listen to this. God lovingly confronts us with truths embarrassing enough to save us. Conviction of sin for God's people, listen to this, conviction of sin is the violent sweetness of God opposing the sins lying comfortably undisturbed in our lives. Maybe that's this morning for you. Maybe you walk out of here thinking this morning was the violent sweetness of God. He got in my face and He did so because He's a Savior. Remember the theme of the book of Isaiah, God is salvation. So the first area of decline we see in, Judah's, in Judah is their national decline. They are a theocracy. Their nation is declining because of their forsaking of the Lord. But the second area of decline can be seen as a religious decline, verses 10 to 20. These people who despise and forsake the Lord aren't outside the church's walls, they're inside the church's walls. Again, to use a 21st century or New Covenant analogy. And notice how God calls these people to hear, to listen. It might not be comfortable. You might want to check out right now. I don't want to hear anymore. He's assessed me rightly. But listen how He calls the reader, the listener to Isaiah's prophecy, to keep listening. Look at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord you rulers of Sodom, he calls them Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of your God, you people of Gomorrah. Go down to verse 20. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So in this section, in verse 10, in verse 20, we've kind of got a, the Lord is speaking sandwich. Listen to him. Listen, hear his word. And then we've got some truth coming, and then the Lord has spoken. 
So it's a call for an uncomfortable person being kind of stood up with their own angry heart to keep listening to his assessment. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. They're, they didn't stop going to church. I'm angry with God. I'm not going to the temple. I'm angry with God. I'm not going to go be with his people. They keep going and they keep bringing the sacrifices and going through the motions. Maybe they can trick God. Maybe he doesn't know what's in their heart. No, he continues in verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who's required of you this trampling of my courts? Is that maybe talking about the amount of people that are coming? Their rebellious hearts, a lot of people still coming through, and he's like, look, look at all the people trampling my courts. Or is it talking about the nature with, their coming, with which they're coming? Angry hearts, hostility. Maybe it's a combination of both. But the way he views this is his courts are being trampled. Verse 13, bring no more vain offerings, empty offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. It's meant to be a sweet aroma to him, but it's an abomination. New moon and Sabbath, they keep the festivals and the calling of convocations. And notice, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. They're coming in his name and they're coming with all of their sin. Not sorry for it. Angry, hostile against him. Don't care. Because they're coming to church. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. I mean, isn't this strong language from God? They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Not just are they heavy on me, I'm tired of how heavy it's been. God saying this in a very personable way so we can understand the depth of it. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands to pray, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. I don't know if there's a greater judgment than to not have God hear your prayers. I'll hide my eyes from you even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Ah, now we get a little bit more insight. It's not just they're angry at God. They're not treating one another well. That's the idea when we hear about hands being full of blood. So, verse 16, he gives them repentance language. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. And we know that's obviously talking about more than physical washing. Their heart is sick. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. So a number of terms saying get rid of things. Wash, make yourself clean, remove, stop doing evil, and then now the opposite. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Another clue that this isn't just about them and God, this is about them and one another. Do what's right before one another. So learn to do good, verse 17. Seek justice, correct oppression. When you see wrongs going on among you, the people of God, seek to do right 
if people are oppressed, if people are struggling and hurting, and you're not seeking to correct that, there's a problem. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Again, a parallel to the new covenant people. The new covenant people of God, of which we are, we're looking out for the least among us, looking to care for one another, not trample over one another to get what we want. So this isn't just that they're despising God. They're also not considering one another, not correcting injustices, not looking out for those in need. And then verse 18. Why in the world is verse 18 here? Because God's merciful. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. That's always struck me. I mean, we've spent 17 verses talking about how these people are angry with God, which is never right, because God's never done any of us wrong. They're angry with God, and they're hurting one another. And he says, come sit in my living room. There should be a sword. There should be everlasting punishment. There should be the justice of God being done. But he offers them to come and reason with him. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, and I think that's a nod not just to the guilt of sin, but I think it's a nod back up to verse 15, your hands are full of blood. Though your sins are scarlet, though you sinned against God and against one another, though your sins are scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Deep red, staining red. Nothing can clean that except God who can make it white. You, your guilt is deep red that there's no remedy for but I'll make sure that it's white as snow that becomes like wool. If you are willing and obedient, if you will receive the mercy of God and do the things that verse 16 talked about, that's the repentance part. If you will receive His mercy and walk in His ways, if you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. Even back to Deuteronomy 8, the people of Israel, the people of Judah now had been told You trust in the Lord, you walk in His ways, there will be security and safety there. You start to turn to other gods, you start to hurt one another, beware. If you refuse and rebel, verse 20, you shall be eaten by the sword. It's a graphic word picture. You shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Again, we end where this section started. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, give ear. Hear the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's not popular in 21st century American churches to go through passages like this. But it's important for us to hear all that the Lord says. To let His word have its effect on our heart. To let it stand us up. Analyze, assess, diagnose us. But then don't miss the offer of mercy that he gives. 
Their blood is currently on their hands. They're angry at Him. They're hostile to Him, which never goes well for people, ever. And they're affecting the people around them. And He promises that if they would trust Him, be willing and obedient, if they would trust in His mercy, that that blood would be removed from them. Innocence, purity, that's what they would be characterized by, innocence and purity. So yet, we all, we know this, before coming to Christ, we all are guilty of sin. We've got the blood on our hands. And yet, doesn't this language, sins like scarlet, red like crimson, cause us to bring our minds to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who bled in place of His people? We've got blood on our hands. We should be the ones who God, whose blood is shed by God Himself and His justice. But He sent His Son, and His Son often bled. Just think of the last days of His life. In the garden, knowing that He would absorb the wrath of God for His people, and it's so tormenting Him. He's not even on the cross yet. He's not even arrested yet, and He's sweating drops of blood. We should be sweating drops of blood, knowing the wrath of God hangs right over our head. But we're not, because He did. In the garden, sweating drops of blood. Then, He was arrested, brought before Herod's men, flogged, and had bone and metal rip off the skin of His back. Our Savior, 2,000 years ago, came to this literal earth and literally, God in human flesh, bled for us. He then had a crown of thorns pressed on His head. So it wasn't just the pain of that, but the physical mocking, you say you're the King of Israel, you say you're the King of the world. They mocked Him for it. Crown of thorns pressed on His head, blood streaming, the sacred head wounded, then spikes driven through his feet on the cross, then spikes driven through his hands, and then a spear thrust into his side to see whether he was dead. In 24 hours, he bled with at least six new wounds. So when he says back in Isaiah, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. The way that our blood guilt is taken away is by Him suffering the blood guilt and taking it. So for the person who's angry with God, despises God, I think it's important to remember that we all should be punished whenever our hearts go there and punished forever. But God Himself came to suffer in our place. The one we're angry with came to suffer and to receive the punishment that we deserve. I hope today is a day where you see the bloody cross as beautiful again. 
And you turn to the Lord not in anger and hostility, but in gratitude and humility and appreciation, knowing that this God is merciful. That's why you're hearing Isaiah 1 today, because he's merciful. So Judah's decline isn't just national, it's also religious. Think of this quote from John Piper that I think is helpful when we think of a religious decline. For many, Christianity has become the grinding out of general doctrinal laws from collections of biblical facts. But childlike wonder and awe have died. The scenery and the poetry and the music of the majesty of God have dried up like a forgotten peach at the back of the refrigerator. There's a certain religious coldness that we can fall into. And we can even start to be angry and upset at God. I hope that a verse like verse 18 and God offering mercy brings back the poetry and the music for you. How do we get back to that childlike wonder and awe? Maybe you do feel my heart is cold toward him and his people. How do you get back to that childlike wonder and awe? It's in our passage, verses 10 and 20. Listen to God. Let him stand you up straight. Verse 16 and 17, repent. Don't just stop sinning, but put on the deeds of righteousness. Verse 18, see the gracious forgiveness of God for murderers, for those that are hostile. See his forgiveness, see his mercy. And verse 20, don't continue rebelling so that you're not eaten by his sword. Listen to God, repent, see his mercy. Don't continue rebelling another day. There's a third area of decline in Judah, verses 21 to 31. It's a social decline. We learn more about the way they're dealing with one another. Notice verse 21, the sickness of the city. So it's not just Judah now. Now we're zeroed in on the capital of Judah, the heart of Judah. Really the city in the whole world meant to show off God's glory, Jerusalem. How the faithful city, faithful. You read through a book like Second Chronicles and you see how a number of kings of Judah led the people faithfully. This has been a faithful city. How the faithful city has become a whore. That's shocking language. Not my word, God's word. A faithful city, faithful to their groom, faithful to their husband, faithful to their God has become a prostitute. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, now murderers. Notice the opposites going on. Faithful city, now prostitute. Righteousness and justice ruled. The right laws, the right decisions were made. Now, murderers. So at one time, people were protected and sought to be cared for through legislation. Now, people are murdering one another. Your silver, a sign of life and health and wealth, your silver has become dross. There's always a little bit of dross on silver, maybe a little bit of imperfection, but dross has taken over the silver. 
Your best wine. I don't know wine, or else I'd spit out like a good year or something. I don't know. Just pick your best. Your best wine mixed with water. It's not how it's supposed to be. Your princes, princes are meant to represent God and His leadership and His ruling. They're meant to be a blessing. Your princes are rebels, companions of thieves. Evidently, part of the social decline is that everyone's selfish. Everyone loves the bribe, runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. Running after your own satisfaction and health leads to a place where you neglect those who are in need. You're so, <clears throat> if you're so consumed with what you can get, you will neglect people in need, and that's not the covenant people of God. At least that's not who they should be. <clears throat> they love a bribe, run after gifts, do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. And verse 24, evidently, God says, this can't go on, won't go on. <clears throat> Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, now that's really meant to get our attention. It's not just the Lord. Therefore, the Lord declares, yeah, yeah, our covenant God, God, no, 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 the Lord of all of the angelic armies is declaring something now. The mighty one of Israel, you think he's trying to send a message? Look at my weaponry. Look at my power. I've got something to say about this. Ah, I will get relief from my enemies. Now, it's interesting there. Normally, the Lord's enemies are the wicked nations, but he's talking about people who take his name. I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and... Listen to this shock. I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your ally. Listen to this shocking statement, verse 26. I will restore. He's not talking about a final judgment here. This is a merciful God saying, you're going to experience some hard things for the purpose of restoration. We don't deserve restoration. We deserve condemnation. But He's going to have His way with His people for the purpose of restoration. And I will restore your judges at the first. I will give you good leaders like you should have. And your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He is going to discipline Jerusalem, but it won't be a final discipline. It'll be a city that's restored and righteousness will lodge in her. That has still yet to happen. And it will one day. More about that as we go through Isaiah. But notice here, this is not a final judgment of God on Judah. It's a discipline for the purpose of restoration. This is how God deals with His covenant people even today. 
if you feel from Isaiah 1 this morning, stood up by this passage, confronted by this passage, I'd encourage you to go and read Hebrews chapter 12. The Lord disciplines those whom He loves because He's a good Father. Verse 27, the question is restoration then? Or will you show that this isn't just a phase, that your anger and hostility is permanent and therefore then receive His future judgment? That's the question of 27 to 31. Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And those who, in her, who repent by righteousness. Now, that's, that's helpful right there, isn't it? Okay, it says He's going to save Jerusalem, restore Jerusalem, but we also know that there's only a remnant that's restored, a remnant that's saved. So, how does that work? Is He going to save all the people? Is it just a remnant? If it's just a remnant, like it says, who's the remnant? How do I become one of the remnant and not one of the judged people of God? Here it is. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. If you're angry and hostile at God, the way to be restored back to Him is the repentance. Verse 28, but rebels and sinners, is the opposite of the ones who are repenting, rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord, that's our word from back in verse 4, those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. And notice, the people who ultimately forsake the Lord and are judged for it, they will regret it, verse 29, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and shall blush for the gardens you've chosen. The oaks, the place where the fertility gods of the nations engaged in all of their sexual worship. Judah is near the oaks, near where that happened. They're doing the things the nations were doing. They've forsaken the Lord they're going to these fertility gardens and engaging in this idolatrous worship. They'll be judged one day, and it won't just be that they say, ah, big deal, fine, then I'll party in hell. No, you won't. Ashamed of the oaks, blush for the gardens. You will regret the rebellion that you were engaged in. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers. Oaks are meant to be pictures of strength. But those who rebel against the Lord, they may think they're strong, but they'll be like the oak whose leaf withers and like the garden without water. And the strong shall become a tinder and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. This is saying the people who are rejecting, rebelling against God and the things that they're doing that seem to bring them satisfaction, both the people and the activities will burn and be destroyed. This is the sad decline, and the question is, is it permanent? Will you go on down the road and ultimately be ashamed and judged, or would you let Isaiah 1 be like a mirror that is held up to your heart, and will you say, yes, that's true of me, I'm returning now? I'm going back to my merciful God. He says He'll restore. He says He's merciful. He says that He will forgive the guilt of my sin and give me innocence. I hope that's what you've determined today. Anger toward God 
is a cancer that touches not only every part of us, it touches the relationships that we have also. And I hope that you let God's prophet stand you up, give you a hearing, give you the diagnosis that you receive it. I hope that you see this morning both God's coming judgment for those who won't turn and also His mercy that's available today. Three different times He gives us words of mercy in this passage. He wants you to take stock of where you're at, and He wants you to think of Him as a merciful Savior who He forgives. You know, I've talked before as we go through Bible studies and even Sunday mornings, I've used the term sit with it Monday. (laughs) Um, What I mean by that is Ephesians 4 says that teaching is meant to be a gift to God's people. So now that you understand a passage sit with it. We might read ahead a little bit. I'm reading ahead, Isaiah 1, we're going to do that Sunday. Okay, I've read ahead. And there might be things you have questions on, and how's this all connecting? Well, then you're instructed in the Word, and you see, ah, I see the message of Isaiah 1. But then we kind of, you know, you're loved and dismissed, go out and we're, okay, next week, Isaiah 2. Well, if there's a time to ever sit with the text now, it's right after we understand it fully. So understand it. And so that's why I think of Mondays that way. You've been instructed Sundays, sit with it, the text, or Him, God Himself, sit with Him Mondays. You don't have to wait till Monday. You can do it today. But my point is, every time you're taught the Word, try to have a time where you let the fullness of it get at your heart, If it needs to confront, it confronts like this morning. You also need to be reminded of the mercy of God. You need to sit with the truths of the mercy of God from Isaiah 1. So, Lord, what's true of me? What's true of you? What's now my response? Please sit with this text. See his judgment. See his discipline. See his mercy. Let His mercy win you over. If you're, like I mentioned earlier, if you're in the church and you're saying, I, I'm not forsaking the Lord, I'm not, I don't despise Him, which is probably most of you this morning, I think there's something for us to learn from this passage. Be careful, because as again the book of Hebrews would say, we can let ourselves, we can let our heart become hardened. So be careful, this is where we can go. But also, as those of us who care for one another, notice the tact God takes. He's honest about the anger and hostility that some people have. It may be a gift to those you love that are near you to say, let's go through Isaiah 1 together. I fear that some of this is true of you. And to be clear, I had a mentor pastor one time give me advice in kind of a correction I needed to bring to someone else. I'll never forget, he said, you've got to be gentle and clear with him. Be very clear about what he's doing. Don't be fuzzy. Just, brother, we got to talk. 
Let Isaiah 1 do your talking for you in talking to someone else. Be clear. The Lord is clear about their waywardness. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't give a general term. Let's go through this and spend time on words like forsake or despise or be estranged. I think there's a call for us to be clear with God's Word and also to point God's people to His mercy. Point them to His mercy. Sometimes people in the church, I'll be clear with God's Word. I'm going at Him. Don't forget His mercy. That's what He's trying to drive them to. So, brother, we need to talk, or sister, we need to talk about where your heart's at. It seems like it's where Judah's heart is at in Isaiah 1. But we also need to spend time hearing words like, come now, let us reason together. We also need to spend time hearing words like, this will be a city of righteousness, a faithful city. There are promises that God's making. We need to hear words like Zion, God's people, you will be redeemed. We need to hear words like that. So point people to God's word. Be truthful to them when you find them angry and hostile toward God and point them to his mercy. That's why he gives us this book. Now let's say you are a person who's struggle with hostility with God, anger at God for His ways, for His people, whatever it is you're angry about. And you've determined today, I know it's wrong. I know He's merciful. I'm coming back to Him. Then hear these words from Thomas Watson. Have you repented? God looks upon you as if you had not offended Him. He becomes a friend a father. He will now bring forth the best robe and put it on you. God is pacified toward you and will, with the father of the prodigal, fall upon your neck and kiss you. Have you been penitently humbled? The Lord will never upbraid you with your former sins. As Peter wept, we never read that Christ upbraided him with his denial of him. God has cast your sins into the depths of the sea. How? Not like a cork, but like lead. The repenting sinner can go to trod with boldness in prayer and look upon him not as a judge, but as a father. I hope for some of you today you've been brought back to your father after hearing of his honest words about where you've been and his mercy toward you. Let's pray. Father, would you deal with our hearts, each of us individually, like only your Holy Spirit can? Would you help us to be honest and to agree with you if we've been where Judah's been? And Father, help us also to see the beauty of your mercy toward your people. I pray that if there have been hearts that have been restless for days, weeks, and months, restless because of hostility, that today would be a day where their hearts can be at rest, calm, brought back to you, enjoying you. 
Father, for us as a church, keep us aware of how we can allow our hearts to be hardened like this. Give us wisdom and how to love and care for and protect those around us with hard hearts. Father, sanctify your people. Allow us to be known for righteousness and love and peace with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.